Well, it's been a sweet time together. We've uh, sung our worship to the Lord. Thank you to the worship band for helping us to do that, for the gifts that God has given to us and those, those special people. It's a, it's a joy to do that. We've, we've given our gifts to the Lord as an expression of both our thanks and our dependence upon him. And uh, we've gathered at the foot of the cross here through the communion moment and, and worship Jesus for, for paying our debt. Yeah? Let's worship him through the study of his word. What do you say? All right. If you were with us last time, you know that we embarked on a, a new journey together, a new study together, a journey to retrace the steps that were taken by a man named Solomon almost 3,000 years ago. Solomon, a king, a wealthy man, and according to the Bible, the wisest man who has ever lived, a man with time on his hands and a burning question in his heart, set out on a journey to identify and document the place where true meaning, happiness, and purpose in this life is to be found. Solomon wanted to know what makes life worth living, what what gives it its meaning? What makes it fulfilling and joy-filled and purposeful and satisfying? He searched, as we saw last time, in a lot of different places. We did a flyover of the book last Sunday, our introduction to this new study series. And he went into every nook and cranny of the human experience in search of a life that would really mean something. He turned to nature. He looked to wisdom. He pursued for a time an unrestrained pleasure-seeking life. He looked to philosophy. He turned to work and to vocation. He looked at achievement and status to see if meaning might be there. He, he turned to money to see if a meaningful life could be found in that arena. He looked everywhere. He spared no expense, and he stopped at nothing in his search for a satisfying, sense-making life. And fortunately for us, he chronicled his search. He kept a diary under the guiding hand of the Holy Spirit. And when he was done, he called his diary Ecclesiastes, a word that means one who preaches, one who teaches before an assembly of people. And we have both the opportunity and the privilege here in this season to study Solomon's diary together on these Sunday mornings. And so I would invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes, if you aren't already there, turn to Ecclesiastes, which sits almost at the center of your Bible. It's just north of Psalms and Proverbs. So if you get into that neck of the woods, you're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you need a Bible today... We can put one in your hands. If you'd like one, just raise your hand. And then there is in your bulletin this little note page. I certainly would encourage you to grab that if you wouldn't mind. Now, someone could legitimately wonder whether or not a book written 3,000 years ago and addressing the issue of a search for a meaningful life, one could wonder if such an old book can really be relevant for us today. Times change, we think. People change. The world has changed a lot in 3,000 years, we suspect. Isn't there something, Pastor Tim, that might be just a little bit more contemporary if we're going to take on this topic? But brothers and sisters, I would remind you, this is the word of God, and it never changes, right? 
It doesn't change because God doesn't change. And what's more, the issues that Solomon addresses are the same issues in any age. Our lives are short and they're uncertain. They're oftentimes filled with with, with injustice and sometimes they're cruel or marked by grief and loss and sadness. And, and what's the point of life, people are asking. And does my life really matter? Does, does anything really matter? Solomon's diary confronts questions like this. It is relevant. It holds the key to how to make, the key for how to make sense of one's life. And who doesn't want to know about that? I want to know about that. Do you want to know about that? Absolutely. And so as we commit to take on this book together, having done our flyover last time, we're going to go back now to chapter one, and we're going to begin to tackle the book week after week after week and work our way through it. And so today it's the first 11 verses of chapter one. That's where we're going to land. And as your Bible is now open to that place, verse 1 reads like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon begins his diary by introducing himself. Says he's a king, a direct descendant of the greatest of Israel's kings, King David, and that he is the preacher. I am the preacher and there's something that you must hear. There's something that you really need to know. And with that, he launches his diary saying in verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We think, wow, what a cheerful introduction to this this diary. Just makes you want to keep on reading, doesn't it? You know, we're accustomed to think of vanity as referring to the person who primps before a mirror for an hour before they go out into public. They're the ones who look at their reflection with admiration as they walk past the window at the mall. We think that's vanity. But that's not how Solomon is using this word. It translates a Hebrew word that literally means vapor. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. And that's a great word picture for what Solomon is wanting to say or what he's thinking. You know, on a cold day in the wintertime, we go outside and, and we can see our breath, right? Vapor. And there are two things that we know about this vapor that we can see on a cold winter morning. We know it doesn't last very long. And it's just there for a moment and then it's gone. And we know that it doesn't have much substance to it. You try grabbing your breath as it comes out of your mouth on that cold winter morning. It gives the appearance of being something, but there's nothing really to it. And that's what vanity here means in verse 2. Emptiness, futility, hollowness, meaninglessness. In fact, if you're toting an NIV version of the Bible this morning, meaningless is the word that is used instead of vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, Everything is meaningless. And we say, wow, well, wait a minute. Time out. This is not what I was expecting to read in the Bible. And we look at the cover of our Bible and say, yep, that, sure enough, that's my Bible. But what is this? Everything is vapor. Everything is meaningless. Vanity. 
Solomon, did you really mean to say that? Well, he sure did mean to say that. Solomon says, life is meaningless. And we say, wow, I must be missing something here since I know that the message in my Bible from cover to cover is that there is life and there is purpose and there is joy and there is a future for anyone who knows the living God through faith in Jesus. That's the message of the Bible that I know. Is that the message you know, church? It is. So we must be missing something as Solomon says this. And we discover that we are. And that missing something is in verse 3. As Solomon asks, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where, church? Under the sun. Yes. Solomon says life is utterly meaningless. And then, he, and then he asks this rhetorical question of his readers. What advantage does a person have in all of their effort and toil and work and labor and life? Where? Under the sun. Only under the sun. Under the sun. This is a phrase that is going to be the key for us to understanding this book. You remember this from last time? Solomon says, when the candle of a person's life, short life, finally blows out and all is said and done, what advantage is there for a person when the life they have lived is lived only under the sun? It is meaningless. That's what he says. Right up front, everything is futile, empty, meaningless when it's lived only under the sun with no thought, no care for God or the things of God. There's no truly meaningful sense-making life when it has no vertical dimension to it, when it's just on this plane, it's vanity. It's empty with no God dimension in it. When we come to Solomon's diary as readers, we have to read Ecclesiastes really with one eye on Genesis chapter 3 and the other eye on the cross of Jesus. And we can do that this morning. Genesis chapter 3, it describes the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That moment of sinful rebellion by the first man and woman, recorded there in that chapter, known as the fall, that moment destroyed the intimacy that existed between a holy God and his morally perfect human creation. And it was a cataclysmic fall. And we know this because we've read it. We know about chapter 3. We know that when that fall occurred, peace with God was lost. Separation from God because of sin became the human story. When did everything turn to futility? Well, it turned to futility when God was no longer on the throne of Adam and Eve's heart. Chapter 3 of Genesis. Ecclesiastes, as a book, is life lived in that space between the fall and the cross. As you see it there on that little drawing that we put there on your note page and it's sitting on the screen at the moment. At the cross, Jesus' death and his resurrection reverse the effects of the fall so that everything in a sinner's life can have meaning and purpose and matter again. Amen? Yeah. And it happens through faith in Jesus and his amazing, saving, redeeming work in our lives, which we just celebrated here at the table. 
Then life becomes meaningful when it's life lived above the sun. But that's not where this is at in this moment. Ecclesiastes describes man's tortured existence between the fall and the cross of Jesus, between Adam and Jesus, between the loss of life and the gift of life. What is it like to be made for God and not have God? That's the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes. How do you scratch out a life of fulfilling purpose and meaning when you're only groping under the sun to find it? That's Ecclesiastes. In verse 2, Solomon is presenting to us the conclusion that one must come to when one's view of life is only from under the sun, purely horizontal. It feels like futility. It feels like vanity. It feels like one day you're here and suddenly you're old. You're here and then you're gone. His diary reflects the perspective of one who has excluded God from their life when there's no vertical dimension to it. No life above the sun. It's an earthbound existence and perspective. And that is the key, church family, that unlocks the book to our understanding. If we miss this, if we don't get verse 3, we miss the message of the book. Now, for you and me who are are, are living life under the sun, S-O-N, life has a whole different meaning and purpose, doesn't it? I mean, your life has meaning. It has purpose. It has a direction. It has a future. But without Jesus and without faith in him, if it's just life under the sun, S-U-N, it's going to be empty. It's going it's, it's to have no meaning now and no future when this life is done. So Solomon puts the question squarely in front of his readers at the very beginning of his diary. He defines the parameters of his search. What does a person gain? By all the toil at which he toils under the sun. After we've sucked dry all of the immediate and momentary pleasure and happiness of of life's pursuits under the sun, what is left? What really remains? What is gained? What endures? What gives life its value, its meaning and purpose? Vapor, smoke, futile. There's nothing to anything under the sun. So Solomon, where did your search under the sun begin that would bring you to this desolate and empty conclusion? Where did your search begin? Well, Solomon's going to start where many people start and where many people go who are desperate to make sense out of their life. He heads for nature. And if you'll flip your note page over, he sets out initially to observe nature and see if in it there is a secret concealed that will give his life a sense of enduring significance. In fact, church family, he does what a lot of folks do who move to Idlewild. Right? Yeah, you you chuckle, but you know that's the truth. They've had it with the rat race of the city. They come to the mountains to... Find a real life, right? To find themselves, they will say. Have you ever had a a new arrival to the hill say that to you? Yeah, yeah. In 35 years, I've heard this many times. 
They're going to go back to nature, commune, find oneness with it, and hopefully find a sense-making, satisfying, meaningful life. They moved to Idlewild. The amazing rise of New Age thought over the past 40 years is very much rooted in this place. The trees, the plants, the rocks, the waters, they're, they're part of me and I'm part of them and I just need to find out how. I need to join my spirit to nature's spirit. That's New Age thought. Yeah? How many of you recognize the name Henry David Thoreau? You know that name? Yeah, some of you are raising your hands. Yeah, he lived in the first half of the 1800s in, the United, in, in America and, and he's seen by many today as one of America's great unsung figures He's the person who is credited with saying most people lead lives of quiet desperation. He's the guy who wrote men have become the tools of their tools. And so to break that sense of empty desperation in his own life, he went to nature. He went to Walden's Pond. And here's the sign posted at Walden's Pond State Park in Massachusetts in honor of him. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. That's Thoreau. He went to nature to find himself, to find meaning and purpose and substance to his life. It's the the first place that so many go to find meaning for their lives. It's the first place Solomon goes in his search under the sun. But instead of finding himself, he finds an endless ongoing cycle of life and death, as we're about to discover. He finds himself and the whole human race to be so extremely transient, momentary, and insignificant, and he sees nature as this enduringly permanent thing that never stops it just goes on and on and on but mankind does not and again remember he's confining his search to an under the sun only perspective so in verse four he says a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever and you can just hear a heaviness in his voice as he says this In fact, he says this backwards. We normally say a generation comes, a generation goes. But he starts with the departing generation and then the one replacing it. The unending, unstoppable passing of time is seen in the constant going of the older generation and the constant coming in of a new generation. And it's it's wearying to him to think about this in comparison to an enduring nature. The new generation thinks they will always be young and cool and hip, but quicker than you can blink blink an eye, you're the departing generation. There's always a new one displacing the old. Solomon observes this. Young people today have no idea how true this really is, right? If you think back to when you were young, you were bulletproof, right? You were... You are never going to be old. You are going to be cool. But if you've had a few birthdays, and some of you in this room have had enough birthdays, you know the feeling. It's 
the creeping sense that your role and your importance and your health and your vitality are slowly slipping away from you. And you can't do anything about it. Slowly but perceptibly, you are declining. And with it, the growing awareness that you are a momentary passing blip on the world stage. Our vacation last month for Lisa and I took us uh, at one point to Albuquerque to see Lisa's family. And I took a morning uh, during that time, and I went over to the football complex where I played football for the University of New Mexico from 1974 to 78. And I walked around the stadium and the football complex taking pictures and recalling my days there. And even though it was summer, there were quite a few players who were at the complex working out. There were coaches. There were other staff there. And I just walked wherever I wanted to go like I owned the place. I was probably there for an hour and a half, two hours, just me. And do you know, church family, do you know not one person, not one player, not one coach, not one trainer came up to me and said, Hey, aren't, 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 you, aren't you number 27, Tim Westcott? <laughs> Defensive back in the 70s, four-year starter, still got his name in the, UN, in the UNM record books 40 years later. Aren't you Tim Westcott? There wasn't one person who came up and said that to me. There wasn't one person who even said hello to me. <laughs> Nobody knew who I was. And, and, and what's more, they didn't care who I was. I drove straight from there to a counseling center to try to recover my <laughs> smashed ego. No, I didn't do that. But I took notes that day. I took notes. A generation goes and a generation comes. How important was I? (laughs) Not very. (laughs) And what's cool and hip and really important today is old and irrelevant and boring and forgotten tomorrow. And the only thing in our existence that seems to remain, Solomon says, under the sun is the earth itself, nature. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And you can just hear the sigh in his voice. But even the earth for Solomon, it's it's a a painful reminder of the futility of life. He laments this. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. He's looking at nature for meaning, for purpose. Solomon says, I look to nature and I notice the sun. It rises in the east. It runs its course, sets in the west. And then while I sleep, it returns to the starting place once again. And it has been doing this for as long as there have been people around and longer still. The same cycle. 
And you can just hear the emptiness in his voice. Sunrise and sunset. Sunrise and sunset. And people come and go, but the sun rises and it sets and it just keeps on doing it over and over and over. Now here's a guy who cannot appreciate a sunrise like Jeremiah could appreciate a sunrise. The ancient prophet, do you remember his words? Lamentations 3.21. But this I call to mind and therefore I have what? Hope. I have hope in my life. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new when, church? Every morning with every sunrise. Great is your faithfulness, O God. That's a guy who's living above the sun, isn't it? Not Solomon. If you just live under the sun, it's a never-ending cycle of sunrise and sunset with a whole life appearing for just a, a moment, a fraction of a moment, and it's gone. He turns his attention to the wind in verse 6. And this ever-present aspect of nature, he observes, also moves on a cyclical path. What's interesting, interesting about verse 6 is that it communicates a truth about the wind and air currents that no one in Solomon's time could have known about. But it's God who reveals it here in this moment. The earth's great air uh, jet streams, they flow in circles around the earth. They start here and they blow there and eventually they come back again. The wind blows only to blow some more, Solomon says. And again he says so with a heavy voice. This is tiresome. This is monotonous. It's unending blowiness. (laughs) People's lives end, but the wind never stops. And then Solomon reflects on the water cycle as yet another enduring aspect of nature. The evaporative cycle. The river runs into the sea, but the sea never fills up. Why is that? Solomon asks. Well, it's because the sun evaporates huge volumes of of ocean water into the atmosphere. The water vapor drifts over land on these wind currents. It condenses and it falls as rain and snow makes creeks and then streams and then rivers which run back into the ocean again and again and again. But life under the sun for a human being has a start and a finish, a beginning and an ending, a birth and a death. Nature goes on and on and on. It's wearisome. It's meaningless. It stays and we go. In fact, Solomon says just that in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. A man can't speak enough about how absurd it is. There's something wrong with this picture, he says. It's, it's backwards. It's upside down. It's people who ought to be permanent and nature ought to be transient. And there's this little voice inside of you and me that says, you know what, Solomon? <laughs> That's true. It should work that way. We're born, we grow up, we begin to learn the lessons of life. And just as we begin to understand life's ways, just a little bit, our life is over. And the next generation starts the search all over again to be followed by another and another and another. 
Now, again, the reason that little voice says it ought to be different is because there is a place in our heart that knows, and the Bible confirms it, that God intended for it to be different for us than what it is. Mankind was to be permanent, right? In the garden, we were to be permanent, never to die. Nature was to be transient. Mankind was to to know that unbroken communion with God, life without death, in a perfect environment. Mankind was the pinnacle of creation and made to care and rule over nature, made to last. But because of the fall in Genesis 3, because of sin, the introduction of sin into the world by virtue of our ancestors' rebellion and our perpetuating of that rebellion, God's good design was drastically altered. Sin always does that, doesn't it? It always destroys It takes a good thing. It takes a great thing and it twists it and turns it until it is nothing of what it once was. Mankind should be forever and nature should be transient, but it's the other way around. And Solomon says, it's wearisome to me. Where is the meaning in it for a person's life? It makes no sense under the sun. In the second half of verse 8, the eyes not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. He says, even though we long to see or hear something new, something that will alter the monotonous, empty, purposeless cycle, nothing new ever really shows up. Generations go, generations come. They pass through the endless cycles of nature. But we long to see something new, something different. We long to hear about something different. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new. Where, church? Under the sun. We say, but but wait a minute. There are all kinds of things that are around today that were new since Solomon's time. Cars, radios, TVs, medical advancements, space travel. That's radically new. That's true. But Solomon is not really commenting here about the inventiveness of mankind. What he's saying is that while things appear to change, they actually just stay the same, really, fundamentally. Mankind still wars like he's always done, and he he, he wars for the same old reasons, even though his inventiveness enables him to war with more deadly precision, he still wars. Nothing's really changed. We still live and work like people of old did. Work hasn't changed. The way we work and and what we work with changes, but people still work. It hasn't changed. Nothing new. People still play like in days of old, even though inventions let them play with more variety, but they just play. And people still die like they've always done. Nature confirms that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. All of that to say that from Solomon's under the sun perspective, the never ending enduring cyclical aspect of nature means that no person is a truly memorable or remembered thing. 
No person. Their life does not have enough in itself to be remembered as having even existed. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And there's this giant, ugh. In nature, there's no harbor to make for. There's no destination to strive for, says Solomon. Mankind is a wisp of vapor. Here for a moment, amidst an enduring, repetitive, monotonous cycle of sunrises and winds and rain showers. What are all of these saying about a life lived only under the sun? Do you remember the words of James chapter 4, verse 14? What is your life? For you are a what? You're a mist. You're a, you're a vapor. Remember that word vapor on a cold winter morning? That's what you are. For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now that's out of the New Testament. That's not Old Testament stuff. And that means we won't be remembered. The journey will go on carried forward by our descendants, but they will not think of us. They will not remember us. It's been said that cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable people. And that's true in the sense that every person is a one of a kind. So we could say it's true in that way. And yet life goes on, doesn't it? Irreplaceable or not, life goes on. Each week, people of prominence, they die, don't they? In fact, since January the 1st of this year, David Bowie, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Arnold Palmer, John Glenn, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, and scores of others have died. Famous, once beautiful people died. We see or read about their death posted in the paper or on the news, and we think, oh, well, what do you know about that? And then we keep right on doing whatever we were doing, right? That's exactly how it goes. We don't even pause. The world keeps spinning. People go, people come. The preacher says in verse 4, my day of going is coming. And you know what? So is yours. Meaningless says verse 2. Wearisome says verse 8. That is Solomon's assessment as he looks to nature for satisfying fulfillment and a meaning-filled, purposeful life. And anyone who looks to nature for significance and meaning to their life and then just thinks a little bit about what Solomon has just brought out into the open is going to come to the same conclusion. Under the sun, it's empty. It's meaningless under the sun. That's not encouraging at all, is it, church? That's not encouraging. Why write this? Why study this as a church family? Or if it's all meaningless, why write 11 more chapters just like this? Why? Because the Holy Spirit wants to make the reader of Ecclesiastes so ravenously hungry for an answer to how to have a life that makes sense and purpose and hope and is hope-driven. It wants to make us hungry by going into all these places. Nature's the first place. 
and showing us how there is nothing that will satisfy. You got to go above the sun, right? You got to go to the sun, Jesus. The answer will come in chapter 12, but we can't wait till then, can we? I can't wait till then. You know, these opening 11 verses are like going to the doctor and hearing that you have a rare form of cancer. And the the doctor painstakingly describes to you the cancer, where it's located and its anticipated effects as time goes on. And you listen with shock because the symptoms that he's describing, man, that's how you've been feeling for a long time. And every detail is spot on in your life as he tells you about this cancer. He diagnoses perfectly your experience. But then that's as far as this doctor goes. He shakes your hand compassionately. He walks you out to the, to the, to the front of his office and says, have a nice day. He's diagnosed your problem. How do you leave that appointment? Impressed with the doctor's knowledge? Well, you bet. This guy knows his stuff. But you say, I need to hear more. I want to hear about a cure. I want to hear about a cure. Is there a cure for what I've got? I wonder if these opening verses of chapter 1 cause you to maybe feel a little bit like that. Are they describing the state of your soul right now? I, I don't have a meaning-filled life. Is there a cure? This moment describes the lives of millions, church family, maybe billions of people right now looking for a cure from nature that will never, ever come. Is there a cure? Fellow Christian, you know there's a cure. Now, again, remember Ecclesiastes describes mankind after the fall and before the cross of Jesus. And here again is where you and I read this book with one eye always looking ahead to the cross of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why did he come into this world? Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came to reverse the effects of the fall, didn't he? That's why he came. To give us a new hope and a new direction, a new purpose for living. How about Hebrews 2, 4, 14 and 15? That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, a life that had no meaning. Why did Jesus come to give us meaning and purpose? Or how about Romans 6.23? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life, a hope and a future and meaning. Where is that found? In Christ Jesus our Lord. And how about Mark 10.45? For even the Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for you, for me. On the other side of the cross of Jesus, everything matters, doesn't it? Everything matters. Everything has meaning, it has a purpose, and it makes sense. Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross to save hungry people who are looking for a cure. He came to die for futile living people. He came to die for vapor-like people. 
for anyone who will admit, God made me. He made me for himself. He made me for more. He made me for an eternity with him. For anyone who will confess that and say, I know that he's holy and I am not holy, that I am a sinner. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died on that cross for me, for my sin, to pay my sin debt. He rose from the dead to prove that he had the power to save me. I can't save myself. We sang that song just a few moments ago. I can't save myself. But he can save me. Anyone who will make that confession receives the free gift of eternal life, Romans 6.23 just said. The personal promise of Jesus. I came, John 10.10, I came that they might have what? Life and have it how? Abundantly. Do you have that life in you right now? You have that life in you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My life is above the sun, isn't it? That's why you can say that. I hope Jesus is in your life today. If he is, you have meaning and purpose. Your life is significant. It will go on and it will matter. If you don't know Jesus, don't leave today without Jesus in your life. See a friend, find me, and let's talk about that. And then, fellow Christian, though much of our time today has been marked by an empty frustration deeply felt by a searching soul, Solomon, let me remind you of this as an encouragement to take into your week. Solomon, from his perspective under the sun, was grieved that a person can live their whole life, do many things, and not be remembered. They can be quickly and unceremoniously forgotten. But let's you and I remember this that people may abandon us, they may leave us, they may forget about us, but God can never, ever forget you if you belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. He can never not remember you. Maybe you're one who is here today saying and sharing Solomon's sentiments, I've been forgotten, I mean nothing to anybody. But God says, if you belong to my son, Jesus, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 or Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? She would never do that. But though she might forget, I will never forget you. That's God's word to you and I. Do we matter? And then Jesus' own words to us before he returned to his father's side were, surely I am with you always. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mankind may forget. History might forget. But Jesus will never forget. It's a truth that only those willing to live above the sun and in the sun can have. May that be your experience. May that be mine through faith in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, church. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. It's been a challenging, kind of heavy-hearted approach this morning and, and yet very necessary for us to once again be reminded that while we live in an amazing world that is just 
screaming out you through its beauty, its intricacy, its, its power, its precision, while our world and, and nature declare you, you are not to be found in nature. We're going we're gonna to find you in Jesus. And we praise you that that is true. And Lord, we pray for our community. We pray for our community right now in, in many, many of, in our community who are, who are looking to find meaning and purpose, but they're looking to find it in nature, and it's just never going to happen. May, may you enable us as the Bible Church family and Christians on this mountain to live so conspicuously that someone is going to say, what do you got that I don't have? And then we will boldly tell them, I have Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging us today. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen.